rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton. Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 11 of Superman in the Bronze Age. I am your host, Charlie Niemeyer, and before we get to the reviews this week, I've got a couple of announcements I want to make. First of all, I would like to reiterate, if you would be interested in being a guest co-host on the show, please feel free to write in at, at umbc81 at gmail.com, and we'll see if we can get you a, a spot on the show. So far, I have recorded with one super guest star, and we had a lot of fun, So, and hopefully he'll come back, but I would love to see if there's anyone else that would be interested, so please make sure you write in. Second, we have uh, some big news. If you've been listening to From Crisis to Crisis, or if you remember from a couple episodes of my show, um, Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor from Crisis to Crisis uh, have uh, kicked off a movement inspired by a recent Ask Matt posting, which involves one of their favorite Superman stories, Dark Knight over Metropolis, which guest starred Batman from back in 89, during when the uh, right around the time the first Batman movie came out. Uh, it's a book that's never been collected in any way, and the only way to show DC Comics that we really would like to see it reprinted is by sending in a bunch of emails. Now, when I brought this up on the, on the show, uh, I want to say it was episode 9, um, I actually included a clip from their show, and they mentioned everything, but they did not know who was in charge of uh, putting together the trades and or hardback books at DC Comics. But we have, or they have found out. Ian Sattler is currently the man in charge, so the email address we need to send the emails to is ian, I-A-N, dot Sattler, S-A-T-T-L-E-R, at dccomics.com. Again, that's ian, I-A-N, dot Sattler, S-A-T-T-L-E-R, at dccomics.com. Now, here's the guidelines that we need to follow. Uh, first, in your own words, explain why you think that the story is important and should be published in a collected format. Uh, second, remember that, the, that Ian's is a busy man and he might receive a lot of these emails, so we want to keep these emails brief, especially for his sake. Third, we don't want to be rude. We want to be really nice because we got to remember that we are representing Superman fans everywhere, and Superman, of course, would be nice about this. So don't be, don't say things like, "Why hasn't this been collected?" It's really stupid that this has been never, this has never been collected. We want to be nice about it and just point out why we think it should be uh, collected and try to be really nice. Uh, and most important is we want to mention that we heard about it on From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. It has nothing to do with ego for the guys. It just gives it a focused voice for the movement. So remember, we have to mention that it's from, from Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast that we heard about this. Okay? Um, the most important part is after we've sent the email, if DC agrees to print the book, we want to make sure we pre-order it. It's important to buy it, but it's even more important to pre-order when it's solicited so that DC knows to print enough of them. Um, uh, I and the and both Michael and Jeffrey and the Superman homepage 
oh, and I'm sure other sites, will make uh, the order information available when and if it's solicited um, so that you'll be able to either order it directly from the Superman homepage or the diamond ordering number at your local con or can you can use the diamond ordering number at your local comic shop. So we want to make sure we do all of that. And what we're really asking is that uh, to, for marketing purposes that we want it uh, collected as Superman Batman Volume Zero. That way, it's uh, set before the actual Superman Batman book started up. But it's very but it's a very important Superman Batman book. Okay, so after having said all that, um, I'm going to play a quick promo, and we will move on to the reviews. December 7th, Earth 2, 1941, a world very much like our own, yet slightly different. A date which will live in infamy. A world at war. United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Following the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought together the largest group of mystery men ever assembled to battle the Axis powers. Tales of the Justice Society of America presents The All-Star Squadron. Tales of the Justice Society of America, every Friday at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Presenting Superman. Okay, and we've got Superman number 240, uh, cover date July 1971, but was published May 13th, 1971. Uh, it's got a great Neil Adams cover. Uh, this time there's no disfigured people on it. It's just Superman... Getting looks like he's getting very frustrated while the public is, I guess, shouting at him and yelling at him, and he's holding a newspaper that has a headline: "Superman fails." And uh, so, uh, the title of this story is called "To Save a Superman." The story is by Denny O'Neill. The art is by Kurt Swan and Dick Giordano, and the editor is Julie Schwartz. And we start off with a, uh, a large apartment building on fire in Metropolis. And Superman shows up to see if there's anything he can do to help. And it turns out uh, that they have someone stuck up on one of the higher floors. But the fire is on the, on the lower floors, so they can't actually get past the fire to go help them. So Superman take, takes off. And as he does so, some of the people in the crowd figure that uh, this is a foregone conclusion that Superman's going to save the day, so they just leave. Some of these are actually even tourists. Um, 
And Superman, of course, can overhear them with his super hearing, wishing that he was as confident as they are, because as you will recall, uh, over the past couple of issues, Superman is not at his peak performance level right now. Uh, but he crashes through the side of the building, finds the, the mother and her two children laying on the floor trying to stay under the smoke. So Superman picks them all up, crashes through the wall again, and lands them back down outside. However, uh, as he's doing that and telling them, you know, trying to help the kids feel better, the owner of the building uh, pretty much acts like a real douchebag to Superman and tells him, hey, save it, come on, please. Well, actually, doesn't even say please. Basically, he says, uh, "That's my building there. Are you going to save it, or are you just going to rest in your laurels?" Because you're not allowed to say "but" or something in back in the '70s. So Superman attempts to do his best. Uh, everything's already starting to buckle as he gets up there. He tries to hold back the side of the building, but both physics and uh, laws—well, basically just the laws of physics—are against him, and he can't stop the building from collapsing. And fortunately, he's not injured. He digs his way out of the rubble and walks off with his head uh, hunched over. And the next morning, Daily Planet has a headline, Superman Fails. And we are in on a meeting of the anti-Superman gang. And they're trying to decide if they, can, if they can really believe this headline or if this is just some kind of joke. Uh, but the head of the head guy, who we don't actually get a name for, um, pretty much says that I think this is gonna that this is real, and it's worth a gamble to see if this is true. So the next day, uh, or actually later that same, well, actually it is later that uh, the next day, the next day, uh, we see Superman for some reason on a walking patrol apparently and of course we've got some construction workers and guys making jokes about how he's not really doing a good job anymore buildings falling on him asking him if he wants help crossing the street because he wouldn't want to stub his itty bitty toe and of course Superman's frustrated by this because he's done all this good stuff for all these years and they one one mistake and apparently they've forgotten all that he continues his tour when he hears a uh, some cannon fire and at first he says you know what it doesn't matter they don't care about me anymore I don't care about them but then he realized then he comes to his senses and gets back into character and realizes you know what I've been fighting crime for as long as I can remember and I just got to do what I uh, be what I am so he leaps off and we see that the same Superman or anti-Superman gang from earlier is trying to rob the bank and they've got a large cannon that they used obviously and they're taking their time emptying the vault because the real point of this whole exercise is to get Superman uh, he come he starts uh, coming in of course he's going slower because he's not at full power and they start shooting at, shooting at him and since he is going so slow they're able to actually get a bead on him and basically they just keep hitting him with the cannon fire and after about four hits he pretty much collapses and that causes Superman to have a bit of a flashback remembering the, the sand Superman creature and he Superman decides you know what he can still take these guys down so he goes inside the bank vault rips the vault door off and throws it at their cannon basically knocking all the men out of the out of the or off the cannon I don't know how to 
I guess off the can of work. And then, um, of course, by that time, the police have shown up and arrested the members of the anti-Superman gang. And back at the Galaxy Broadcasting, Superman, or, yeah, Superman switches back to Clark Kent, uh, thinking to himself about how that door was a major effort to rip off, considering he used to be able to run, uh, flip planets around like marbles. And he needs to figure something else. He's got to figure out something because right now he's a washout as a Superman. And Jimmy enters, uh, I guess, in, Jimmy knows that Clark's in a file office, and, or in the file room, because, of course, that's where Clark changes, and uh, tells Clark there's someone in his office waiting for him, an old gentleman. And Clark goes to his office and sees that it's I Ching, and who is a friend, who has been a friend of Diana Prince, a.k.a. Wonder Woman, since uh, she lost, since her power, well, since she lost her powers around this time. And, um, he starts talking about the fact that he does know that Clark Kent is Superman, even though he's blind, and he might be able to help. Might be able to help him. So Clark says, "Well, why not? I've got nothing else to lose, so um, I'll see you tonight." And someone, it looks like a young kid, teenager, working at the Daily at the Daily Planet or GBS. Not sure what office this is supposed to be, um, because you know, there's both. Uh, Calls the uh, calls the anti-Superman gang and points and lets them know about these, this recent development because he's been told to keep an eye on all of Superman's friends. So that night at Ai Ching's apartment, which looks like it looks like it's a basement apartment, uh, they see Clark enter, uh, and he quickly switches to Superman once he gets inside, and lays down, and Ai Ching, Ai Ching begins. Um, some, I don't know how to put this, it's kind of like, well, let's just say he starts uh, the seance kind of thing, uh, thrusting psychic fingers uh, into where his spirit resides. And while they're doing, while he's doing that, uh, the anti-Superman gang sneak into the apartment, and I Ching starts to be able to pull Superman's spirit out of his body, so that it may be, may be examined and cured, but at that point the guys make uh, the anti-Superman gang make themselves known, and which upsets I Chain because he should have been able to sense them, but he was so busy uh, and intent on his task that he didn't even notice them. Uh, he be, he tries to stop them, but of course is quickly knocked out because he is blind. And one of them stands over Superman and decides he's gonna try to see what happens when he hits them with the butt of a gun and it hits Superman and he forms a bruise on his forehead. It does knock him out of the trance though. As one of the members is about to shoot Ai Ching, Superman uh, quickly gets up, punches one in the gut, goes after the one that's about to shoot Ai Ching, he shoots at Superman and the only thing that prevents Superman from getting hurt is the indestructible costume he's wearing and with one punch is able to knock out the shooter. And the other two guys are there and have pulled their pistols by this point. And Superman dives in and pulls a Batman and does a couple quick punches to them. And basically considers this to be his greatest victory because he did this without any of his superpowers. And at this point he starts thinking that he doesn't know if he'll ever get his powers back. And right now he doesn't care. And that's the end of that story. Um, let's see. 
notes on this one. Uh, first of all, um, I do want to point out this, of course, uh, was reprinted in Kryptonite Nevermore hardcover from a couple years ago. Uh, it is the only time this issue has been reprinted. Page 3, the owner of the apartment building that's on fire is rather rude to Superman. Basically taking him for granted, like, okay, you saved them, now save my building. I mean, come on, he's not God. Uh, although at this point, it, people were kind of used to him having the powers of a god, so I guess I could understand it, but it just doesn't seem nice. Uh, on page 5, I really don't think he would have been able to stop that building from falling if he had his full powers. Uh, now, I'm thinking the current version of Superboy with his tactile telekinesis might have been able to hold it together depending on how powerful that is, but Superman, uh, basically he would have held up that wall while the rest of it tumbled, so basically he would have just held up one wall, so I really don't see how he could have done much. Uh, but what's funny, uh, also on page 5, is this makes front page news about him failing, and granted these some of them were, pre were, print, uh, were published after this story, but he's failed before. We've seen him fail, uh, and if earlier issues of Superman in action. Uh, I don't know why this, I mean, yes, I understand the building fell, but it should, I mean, the building falling should have been um, the headline. I don't know why I'm saying it's because Superman failed. And I know it's Daily Planet, but and I know they're supposed to be uh, objective, but I just don't see Perry White uh, allowing that to be published. But then again, Morgan Edge is in charge of the Daily Planet, so he could he can go he's over Perry's head, so he could have made him do it that way. I don't know, but I just it just doesn't make much sense to me. Uh, page six, like I said, Superman apparently is on a walking patrol. They don't actually mention this in the story, but I don't know why out of nowhere Superman's just walking around. He can still fly or at least do some leaping, so he should be able to do his normal patrolling. But for some reason, he's just walking so that he can get made fun of easier, I guess. I don't know. And, of course, like I said, he's he's calling them ungrateful people, and it just seems really out, out of character. But then again, the people are out of character. They're, you can't make fun of the guy because he wasn't able to save one building, and then you're going to make fun of him. I mean, the guy can still stop bullets. He could still basically burn you with a glance. Um, so. It just doesn't seem right. I mean, I can understand people would do that, but still, it's Superman. I don't see that happening. I mean, I don't know about you, and I'm not trying to be political, but there have been presidents of the United States, of course, in the past or in the current or in the present uh, that I don't completely agree with and their policies. That's fine. Uh, everyone is entitled to that. In fact, uh, I've been on Facebook and I've heard people be that way. That's fine. Um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you this. If I actually had an opportunity to meet the president, it would probably be still really cool to shake his hand. I don't care what president it is, even if it was Nixon, probably. Hard to say. Uh, but, I mean, it's still the president of the United States and just a see the guy, meet the guy in person is going to be something really cool and something not a whole lot of people can say. These guys making fun of Superman as he's walking by, I could see that happening to any regular 
Joe Schmo, Joe Schmo, but basically Superman's a celebrity. It doesn't matter. I mean, heck, Lindsay Lohan, if I got to meet Lindsay Lohan, I wouldn't be like making fun of her to her face. I do that on the internet. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Um, but it would still be kind of cool to meet her. That's all I'm saying. Um, page 11, the dialogue on that one page is pretty bad. Last panel on page 11, the kid's talking like he's from the, like he's from like literally the 40s radio show. He's like, uh, you said to report any funny stuff going on with Superman's pals. Well, this old Chinese just yapped with Kent. And then the guy calls him Charlie Chan. It give him a call when he lights someplace. I know people have talked that way, but these guys are like mobsters, basically. And they're not going to say that kind of stuff. Let me, uh, it's like, yeah, well, Superman, Clark just talked to some old Chinese guy. And then the other guy would have said, follow Charlie. I could see him calling him Charlie Chan. Um, but give me a call when he, you know, gets someplace or something. It's like, light someplace page 15 uh again again i think it's kind of a character i understand that he's just had this big victory and so he he's kind of pumped up on adrenaline and everything he's just superman is just beating up these guys without any of his powers but i would think that he would also be even more determined to get his powers back because of how difficult that was and he, he should realize that he's going to have people coming after him that are expecting him to be at full power, and he won't stand a chance against them. Um, Lex Luthor comes to mind. Um, the more members of this anti-Superman gang, I don't know if this is everybody, but he barely took them out. They came at him earlier in the issue with a big cannon. If it, I mean, granted, he's got his indestructible costume, but if they had shot at him in this condition, he would have died. So... But anyway, and um, well, I say but anyway a lot. Probably gonna get a get started drinking anyway. Uh, and overall, though, um, I do think overall uh, the story isn't perfect, but it's still a pretty entertaining story. And uh, I actually kind of like the change of pace on the inks a little bit. Uh, Giordano is really is a really good inker uh he really allowed more of P swan's pencils to shine through than anderson's uh been doing lately it kind of gives it a uh, harder edge which i kind of liked uh, compared to kind of like the softer edge that um anderson gives and the other thing i thought was interesting was um and that i don't know if maybe he helped ink the cover uh, or just because of how much how similar his style is to at Neil Adams, but on page nine, uh, when Superman's doing his flashback about the Sand Superman, the second image is basically not exact, but it's very similar to the cover of 234, with the Sand Superman flying overhead and Superman falling at that weird at, well, it's not a weird angle, it's a cool angle, but at an angle you don't normally see, and that just looks really cool. I mean, granted, it could be Swan just copying the cover, but um, whether it's Kurt Swan or not, the fact that Giordano's inking it kind of gives it more of a a different feel. It's, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. It just, it, I don't know, it almost doesn't even look like Swan on that image, but I mean, you can't tell it is. It's got super, it's got the Swan Superman face and the S and stuff, but the rest of it just looks a little weird. Anyway, that's all I have on that story. Uh, we're getting close to the end.
uh, of Kryptonite Nevermore. I think we've only got, this is 240, we've only got about two more issues left, so it's really starting to gear up. Boys and girls, your attention please. Presenting a new exciting radio program featuring the thrilling adventures of an amazing and incredible personality. Faster than a speeding bullet. Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a journey through the golden age of the Man of Steel in comics, radio, and film. Available at GreatCrypton.com Everyone knows that baby Kal-El was sent from Krypton to Earth by his parents, Jor-El and Lara, shortly before the planet was torn apart by violent internal pressures. But what else do we really know about Krypton and its history? Journey with us now as we explore the Fabulous World of Krypton. Okay, Fabulous World of Krypton. The title of the story is called The Man Who Cheated Time. It's written by Carrie Bates with art by M.W. Kaluta. We start off in the Scarlet Jungle. And we learned that underneath the Scarlet Jungle is a hidden security arsenal. And there's a we follow a custodial engineer who's going through cleaning the place. And he finds that there's this newly installed chamber. And he's heard the, personnel, the rest of the personnel whispering about it. And he wants to see what it is. So using the, his laser key, he's able to open the door and sees that it's a machine called... Tempor, and that it's been condemned by order of the Science Council. And to learn why it's been condemned, we go back uh, a little while. I'm not sure. It doesn't actually say how far back, but we go back and uh, to a story that begins with the malicious ambitions of Zolmar, a young apprentice scientist to uh, working with Malva. And Tempor is a uh, is a device that he's created, and this is the day before. Uh, the big demonstration of the Tempor device. And Zalmar says that nothing could keep him away, and that after tomorrow, Malva will be in disrepute, while Zolmar uh, will gain fame and fortune. And we're left to wonder why a little bit. Uh, as, we, as he's walking, I guess, home, we see uh, what appears to be a demonstration by some unruly students who are using, basically, lasers to destroy the statue of Darnex, Krypton's most famous military leader. He continues to ride, looks like he's riding a lift, and points out that uh, General Darnex ruled Krypton a thousand years ago, and Zolmar believes that that was the real ideal society to live in, and that these demonstrators would have been executed if he was still in charge. 
because he knew how to maintain law and order. So we're kind of getting an idea of what kind of person that Zolmar is. And he says that in just a few hours, he'll actually be able to meet the great general and make him realize that he's got incalculable value in this military society. And you're still wondering, how's that going to happen if that was a thousand years ago? Keep reading. So Zolmar gets in his vehicle. I don't know if you want to call it a car, but it's a vehicle. Actually, looks kind of cool. Um, and he says he's going to visit some of Malva's scientist friends. So first, he goes to his friend Thraxel, one of Krypton's most celebrated inventors. And they're, st they're talking about Tempor. And suddenly there's an implosion that goes off. And we learned that Zolmar had actually sent a, a remote control implosion device uh, to go off while he was visiting. And basically he's gone in to steal a Elusicon, which Thraxel has invented, uh, which is supposed to make an illusion on everything and anything. So basically what he does is he grabs a piece of pottery, uh, uses the Elusicon on it to make it look like the Elusicon, and puts it back, and then leaves. So then he goes to the laboratory of Krypton's most foremost meteorologist, and he's used the Elusicon to look, make himself look like Malva, and asks to borrow the uh, miniature weather regulator. And then, and this is just continues to go on with his plan. Uh, next, he goes to protobiologist Ron Rue, and as he, as Ron Rue actually finishes uh, talking to someone on his visiphone, which is basically a video, it's basically a video call which you can basically do with your iPhone now. He answers the door to see it's Malva, and he comes in to ask to borrow his proto-synthesizer, because it has basically been, recently been create, perfected to create life forms. Suddenly, Ron Rue turns around with a blaster of some kind and says that he can't, you can't really be Malva, because I was just talking to him on the visiphone. So Zolmar, even though he looks like Malva, is a lot more capable than Malva is, and with a swift kick to the gut, uh, knocks Ranu down, and then takes the gun and blasts him, basically disintegrating him. So he goes and grabs the proto-synthesizer anyway, and we learn that these devices may be new now, but a thousand years ago they were undreamed of, and back in Darnix's time, uh, he will be acclaimed as a scientific wizard and be the general's right-hand man, or at least that's what he thinks. And so he goes home, I, I suppose, it doesn't actually say it, but uh, the next morning, uh, under the austere scrutiny of the Science Council, it, at least that's what it says, There's, uh, we only see three members of the Science Council here. The plan is that the Tempor device will project his assistant into 1,000 years into Krypton's past, and then after about 10 minutes, he's, the, the controls are programmed to return him to the present. However, we learned that Zolmar has sabotaged the time machine to short-circuit immediately after it lands, and so he will stay in the past permanently. And Malva activates the device, and basically we see his respiration, heartbeat, and metabolism rates. The instruments are actually able to keep track of him no matter where he is in time. At this point, he's 545 years into the past. And suddenly, Zolmar realizes that if he materializes, if he possibly materializes in the middle of Darnix's warriors, they might think he's a spy. So he's going to use the Elusicon to change him into a man no one would dare to harm, and he turns himself into General Darnix himself. However, this energy pulse reverses the time-directional impulses and now thrusts him forward in time. 
So Malva decides uh, he needs to bring him back. He throws the switch to pull him back, but it's already too late. Zalmar has gone 12 years past them into the future, and suddenly the life, his life signs come to an end. And the council says that Zal is dead 50 years from now in Krypton's future. The invention is now condemned, and all time travel experimentation is now forbidden on Krypton. And we learn that the reason, and of course on the bottom we, we learn that the reason that Zalmar died 50 years in the future is that 50, by 50 years in the future, Krypton had exploded just the day before Zalmar reintegrated or whatever. So basically, this story takes place 50 years before the explosion, 50 years in one day. I kind of like this story. Has you think that he's going to do something to sabotage the experiment to make Malva look bad, but that's actually an indirect, uh, it's like actually an inadvertent thing. He basically is still planning on going back to the past and letting that work. He just is going to stay there forever. Uh, of course, he doesn't know that like we do, that you can't mess with history, and he wouldn't actually, and of course, Malva doesn't know this either, but by going back in the past, he, I mean, he could have been there, but he wouldn't, it, he wouldn't have been able to change history anyway, so Zolmar, this whole story was for naught, but he didn't know that. Um, again, this story uh, is reprinted in the Best of DC number 40, and in the Superman World of Krypton trade paperback. Um, on page two uh, is really my only note per, uh, in the actual story is we see that uh, there's protesters on Krypton which you don't really hear much about usually you hear about how it's a peaceful society and basically the only person that you ever hear about uh, having anything to say against uh, Krypton is General Zod who later gets arrested granted there are cri uh, criminals but um, the only other one that, that seems to dis, uh, have any kind of dissent against uh, the council or anybody seems to be Jor-El when he's trying to tell everyone the Krypton's about to explode. So this was pretty interesting to learn. And that's another reason why I'm liking this fabulous world of Krypton. You're really learning a lot about the planet before uh, it blew up. Uh, there's protesting. Basically, it's a lot like Earth, yet very different. It's really interesting. And like I said, this this it's a good story. The the art is really good. Not quite as good as what Gray Morrow, in my opinion, not quite as good as what Gray Morrow did last issue, but still really interesting. Very detailed. Uh, it kind in some instances, well, not exactly. Uh, in some instances, it kind of reminded me of uh, Brian Boland art in a little bit. Some of it, not all of it. Uh, kind of it. it it's it's very different from what you would see from Kurt Swan in the rest of the story. So that's, I thought that was pretty cool. And um, the only problem I had with it is uh, why no one thought about the fact that uh, why did he die 50 years in the future if he was going to land basically in the same place? Maybe they'd run to in. I mean, granted, that would change history, so I could see why they didn't. But think about how things would have changed if they actually investigated that. Um, also, as far as the art, the costumes actually kind of had that retro-futuristic look. A lot of the costumes reminded me of some of the uh, pieces of art I've seen from like uh, 30s and 40s era Buck Rogers stuff, where everyone's, uh, or even like the, they're wearing futuristic-looking outfits, but they all have capes, and uh, some of the guys are wearing shorts that look like skirts and stuff. Um, 
it's a lot like that. It's pretty interesting how it looks. And that's it for that issue. There's no world's finest this month, so we're going to go. I'm going to go ahead and play some promos for you, and be right back. Coming October 31st, 2010, Superman Forever Radio, a new weekly podcast which will focus on Superman and his family of comics, movies, television shows, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Featuring the latest news, reviews, and the latest and classic adventures of the Man of Steel, an in-depth look at a variety of topics throughout Superman's 70-plus years of history. Join host J. David Weeder every Sunday for Superman Forever Radio, coming October 31st, 2010. For more information, go to supermanforever.com. While attending a demonstration in radiology, student Peter Parker was bitten by a spider, which had accidentally been exposed to radioactive rays. Through a miracle of science, Peter soon found that he had gained the arachnid's powers and had, in effect, become a human spider. Stan Lee presents... Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can. Spins a web, any size, catches seeds, just like flies. Look out, here comes the Spider-Man. Welcome to Amazing Spider-Man Classics, where every month I and some friends will be discussing every book, every guest appearance, and every cameo we can find of our favorite web slinger, The Amazing Spider-Man. Are you tired of arguing over whether Ben Riley should have taken over the webs? Do you grow weary of the brand new day with all of its controversy? Then return with us to the early days. Return with us to the classics. Amazing Spider-Man Classics at Amazing Spider-Man. Dot Libsyn dot com. To him, life is a great big hang up. Wherever there's a hang up, you'll find the Spider Man. Look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's SupermanHomePage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. SupermanHomePage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. SupermanHomePage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com Superman is a copyrighted feature appearing in Action Comics magazine. All right, Action Comics number 402 is uh, again, has July 1971 cover date, published May 27, 1971, uh, with a cover by Neil Adams and Dick Giordano. And this time, uh, if you recall, this is a, a continuation from last issue. We saw Superman being led away on a wooden pole being carried by some Native Americans. And this time, we see that they've t got him tied up, I'm guessing, to the same pole. It's hard to tell with a different artist. And um, they basically got it in a fire pit. And as you know, Superman doesn't have any powers right now. So this could very much hurt him. Now, again, none of the stories in this issue of action have ever been reprinted to this point. And uh, this first story is This Hostage Must Die. The writer is Leo Dorfman. The art is by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson. The editor is Murray Boltonoff. And again, Superman is created by Jerry Siegel and Jim Schuster. We start off with um, basically a recap. Uh, the whole village is alerted to um, something 
big going on at the place of sacrifice, and they're gathering wood, and there's a slight, a small recap, takes literally two pages, uh, and basically it takes away a lot of what we actually read last issue, basically cuts out the whole part with Old Snake and his Medicine Man stuff, and basically just uh, makes it sound like Superman asked uh, Haldane not to build the rocket base there, and that he and offering to build it somewhere else. And he says, "No, this is this is the perfect area for it, and the country's needs come first. And then it just skips right ahead to Red Hawk using the medicine science to take away Superman's powers and having him tied up. But as it ends, Red Hawk has his fellow guys use smoke signals to let everyone know exactly what's going on. And at the rocket base, they've just about got the rocket into the into a concrete silo to have it ready for launching for the launch test tomorrow. And one of his people sees the smoke signals and mentions that he learned how to read them when he was a kid in Boy Scouts. And that it says that the Navarros have captured Superman and they want to trade him for Montezuma's castle, which we know is the area where the rocket test site is. And a few moments later, another uh, gentleman comes up saying that Superman's cape was left by a Native American at the gate as possible proof. And, of course, Hal Dane says this can't be right. Uh, so everyone get back to work. And he takes it to his personal office and using a blowtorch or a acetylene torch, uh, it can't burn the cape, so very, therefore he thinks that this is real. So he turns on his emergency radio because uh, he knows that Superman is always handling emergencies. and what we hear is we've got uh, someone calling for Superman's help when a volcano was erupting. Uh, another one calling uh, a, a ship calling for Superman's help uh, because it's been stranded on a reef since the day before. And then a news broadcast on TV, which usually we just see that this would be GBS, but it's not saying that in this instance. And that Superman has not been seen in 24 hours and that Supergirl is away on a mission in space. And once again, apparently, the Superman comics seem to have forgotten that there are other superheroes on Earth. And uh, let's see. So quickly, uh, Haldane changes to what they call a space uniform, uh, but does not look like a space uniform at all. Basically looks like a jumpsuit with a weird-looking helmet and a handkerchief. Is that what I'm seeing? That... Well, doesn't you don't see it anywhere else, but on this one image, it definitely looks like like a scarf or something around his neck, and he moves fast, and, uh, and he's got some a piece of part of old parchment, and he says he's got to hurry because he's got um, the FBI and the CIA will be swarming around there soon, and if they do, his whole scheme could go up in smoke. Uh, so he gets into the rocket, and we learn that the rocket is not designed to go up, but is designed to go down into the earth and is actually a mechanical mole. And it's digging down into the uh, bluff known as Montezuma's Castle. Meanwhile, uh, above the Navarro ancient land of sacrifice where Superman is being held, we see uh, police and um, other kind of armed force helicopters checking the area to see if they can find Superman, and all they see are a forest of cacti, 
And meanwhile, down below, Superman's looking straight up at these same helicopters, wondering why they can't see him. And it turns out that Red Hawk explains that they can't see him uh, because, it's like uh, as was mentioned last issue, he's an astrophysicist, so he was uh, so he's smart enough to create invent a mirage projector, which is keeping them all hidden so they can't help Superman. Now Superman at this point has is using a, some X-ray vision he's got his X-ray vision to look inside one of the helicopters, and this confuses him because he's not supposed to have his superpowers. And um, and then all of a sudden, uh, Moonflower and a couple of guys come past with a small child, who it turns out has hurt himself, and may have it may have been broken, and they can't get him to a hospital because the you know the authorities are hunting for the Navarros because of the fact that they've got Superman. Well, Superman's X-ray vision is still working somewhat. It's not at full strength, but it is working, and he's able to see that. The lad's shoulder is only dislocated, so they're able to fix that up and take care of everything. So that helps, and then um, that can fix the shoulder temporarily until they can actually get to a hospital. And then for his assistance, Moonflower comes back with, a, with some water for Superman, and as she pours it, as she pours the water into a cup, and some of the water spills onto the little, uh, I'm not sure what to call it. Uh, apparently it's, a, uh, oh, the, it's the magic sand painting is what it is. And somehow Superman understands the magic behind the painting as he takes the water. And he asks Moonflower to pile some of the firewood around him. And she says, okay, but why? And he says, hold on a second, I'll tell you. So she piles it around him, and using what he still has of his heat vision, uh, he sets the wood on fire, basically making it sound like he's going to kill himself. And Red Hawk uh, runs off because, you know, he's kind of scared and can't believe that this is happening. He, they only wanted him as a hostage, so he tries to get someone to help him break up the fire. And when they finally get the fire out, they see that Superman is gone. And then Moonflower explains that at some point, somehow, some way that I don't understand, uh, Superman explained to Moonflower that his x-ray vision had finally detected that the source of the magic was the jewel, not the sand painting, and that apparently it has figured out that as an astrophysicist, uh, Red Hawk was able to invent a jeweled lens which siphoned the rays of a distant red sun, and then where uh, was able to direct those rays at Superman, which is what knocked out his powers. So he created the fire, uh, which created enough smoke to block those red rays and allowed his, him to get enough power to escape. And so now Red Hulk thinks that this is bad, and Superman will probably try to seek revenge. But uh, Superman is actually still feeling sorry for the Navarros, and says that they must be desperate if they're going to such extremes to get Montezuma's castle back. So he goes back to the rocket base at super speed to try to make one final appeal, but he uses his X-ray vision to locate Haladane on the base, but can't find him anywhere. But he is able to spot the mechanical mole as it's drilling down into what we don't know yet. And Superman uses, uh, flies in and burrows through using his superpowers. And 
it brings him out into the tunnel that was dug by the drill. And follows it down and sees Haldane in a large cavern with treasure of the ancient Aztecs. And when I say treasure, I'm talking about there's piles of gold and statues and jewels and everything. And the drill has uh, actually got mecha, uh, some light on it so Haldane can see. And Haldane tells him uh, that the story was all, uh, figures that the story was all a trick just to capture him and smoke him out. But uh, Superman points out that crooks like you always trap yourselves. Superman rips off the skin of the rocket and we see that the ship is already almost practically full of gold and jewels. And Halliday offers to share it with him, but of course Superman says no, he has the wealth of the worlds at his command. And you'll have and that Haladane uh, will have no need for money in the pen, which is where he's headed. And the next day, Superman shows all shows it all off to Red Hawk, and says that the government has returned the land to him, and that the treasure rightfully belongs to the Navarros. And a few months later, we learn that the Navarros have used the treasure and the money to build schools and hospitals and farms. Uh, and that Superman's going to make his own contribution to the new community. So he's created a door and carved a cavern out of uh, the Montezuma's Castle Bluff, called it, calling it the Montezuma's Castle Museum. And it basically is like an Indian, almost looks like a Native American version of basically Superman's door to his fortress. And it's a vast museum that Superman has now created so that uh, the Navarros can also uh, share the Aztec treasures with their fellow Americans. And already we've got lines of people uh, flocking to the grand opening of it. And uh, Red, once again, Red Hawk thanks him, and Moonflower gives him a kiss on the cheek and says that he is their superhero now. And Superman flies off. And that's the end of that story. And uh, it's actually, again, we have another, it, it's a, a pretty good um, ending to the story that was started last month. And um, I hope that Leo is able to continue on this pace because this is pretty good. Uh, I mean, it's not the best I've ever read, but this is pretty good uh, Superman storytelling for this time period. Um, and I actually got kind of excited seeing Superman with his powers again, so I got sucked right into it. Um, on this, in this story, though, on page three and four, um, now you got to remember that this story, uh, this is uh, the only Leo Dorfman only has fourteen pages to tell the story. This is an era where, uh, in where everything was compact. Instead of having uh, seven-part stories at a time or six part stories where you basically only tell two stories in a year and then having them go right into a trade paperback to be sold to Barnes and Noble or Borders. This is, was basically um, trying to get it almost one and done, maybe two at a time, maybe a two part story. Cause this is like the third or fourth one he's done. That's a two part story. Um, but again, this is that era where everyone was trying to keep it kind of condensed. And he actually uses two whole pages of a 14-page story 
to do the flashback to last issue, and it doesn't even include everything. Uh, so it wasn't it wasn't really doesn't seem to be real judicial use of the storytelling pages. Granted, that might have been Kurt Swan, but I don't know. Uh, page six. Um, once again, when we're seeing everyone calling for Superman's help, I get the feeling that they're taking Superman for granted. Uh, literally, it's like, Superman, why aren't you answering? Why won't you help us? I mean, come on, people. Now, granted, I don't live in a world where Superman's real, so I don't know how I would feel, but I would think that with him only being one man, maybe they wouldn't be like that, but apparently they are, and that is one of the few things that actually seems to be somewhat consistent between Superman and action in this era is that everyone's taking him for granted. So I kind of really feel for the guy. Page eight. Um, I think it's, uh, I thought it was kind of convenient. Every time uh, Dorfman has had Superman lose his powers, um, which has been, what, two or three times now, uh, it hasn't actually been all his powers like we originally are led to believe. Uh, if you remember that imaginary story, he still had his vision powers. And again, this time, he still has his vision powers. It takes a little extra effort, and it's not full power, but he still has his vision powers, which he's able to use to escape. So it's like, I, it's almost like maybe Dorfman wrote himself into a corner and then was like, oh, you know what? Maybe if, I, maybe if he still has these powers, he can still do it, because those red solar radiations should have knocked out everything. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, page 12. I thought it was really funny uh, when Superman sees the treasure but without telling us what he's seeing. Uh, his first reaction is great galloping galaxies. I'm used to hearing him say, or hearing, but I'm used to reading him uh, in this era say like great Krypton or great Rao or something like that. But great galloping galaxies is a new one on me, so that's interesting. Uh, and I know all the heroes at this time had special sayings to go with them, like. Um, Wonder Woman's was Great Hera. Uh, Green Lantern was Great Guardians. Uh, Aquaman was Great Neptune. Uh, and also, I know Batman liked to say Great Scott a lot. So that's all I could say about that, really. Uh, page 14. Um, I like, I thought it was kind of funny. Uh, it's just kind of the way they did storytelling back in those days. But I thought it was pretty fitting. It's a good thing they. Uh, had Red Hawk and Moonflower uh, explain exactly what was happening so that they didn't have to waste a caption box. Uh, basically what we're looking at is Superman's putting the door in and we've got Red Hawk saying Superman carved that cavern into a vast museum so we could share the finest Aztec treasures with our fellow Americans. And then Moonflower says the tourists are flocking to the grand opening. Which of course they wouldn't normally say and if this was real uh, one, there'd probably be a little more to do. Second, there'd be some more guards, I would imagine, and I hope there's some kind of protection so that all these people aren't going to steal the treasures. So, anyway, so I thought this was pretty cool. And, um, and I don't know why, um, but I, again, the art, the Kurt Swan Murphy Anderson art, is better here than it has been in Superman, and I don't know why. It's a little bit different in this month because of the fact that uh, Murphy Anderson didn't ink Superman, so it's hard to compare them. But again, this issue was on par with last issue, which I thought was well ahead of the Superman issue, and it just kind of 
is confusing to me because they're now granted I don't know how it was at the time, but reading it forty years later, um it seems to me like Everyone goes on and on about how important and how awesome and how classic the Kryptonite Nevermore story is, while no one mentions anything about these. And granted, some of these haven't been the best, but for and maybe it's because of the longevity of action comics, and maybe it just seemed more important. But for some reason, it's just uh, Swan and Anderson. It just seems to have a better rapport on their art stylings and stuff in in action than they have in uh, Superman. It just it, sound, it seems like they would want to make sure they brought their A-game to the other stores since it was supposed to be having a significant change on Superman than this, uh, than this one. Granted, you would think they'd have their A-game both times, but you know what I'm saying. So uh, it's kind of it's just kind of weird. Um, like I said, part one was a little more entertaining to me, but this was still had a pretty good conclusion. Uh, of course, the, with the using two pages for the recap, they kind of had to cram the ending into like two pages also which kind of for, uh, crammed it in but it still worked um, the backup story in this issue is another Tales of the Fortress backup called Superman vs. Supergirl The Feud of the Titans this one is written by Jeff Brown aka Leo Dorfman with art by Swan, Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson and we start off seeing uh, that Superman and Supergirl have returned to the fortress and for some reason, uh, they despise each other. And while Superman's entering the fortress using his no the normal door he's created, Supergirl has actually created her own entrance uh, so that she doesn't have to be near him. And as Superman enters the place, we see that it, the fortress is filled with some kind of noxious fumes, some kind of green gas. Uh, and quickly mentions that luckily Kandor isn't harmed because uh, it gets its oxygen from a special tank. So Superman uses his super vacuum, uh, yeah, his super breath in reverse and sucks up all the, I guess you would call it super suction breath, uh, to suck up all the gas. However, it doesn't seem to work. And the next panel we see there's still plenty of gas floating around in the place. So Superman tears off at what appears to be super full super speed heading towards the supergirl wing of the fortress to to um, have it out with her however he crashes into an invisible wall and on a nearby monitor screen uh, she explains rather nastily that she has created a barrier of super force which even he can't penetrate and for some reason superman doesn't believe her again and he tries again and again and it's still not working and so unfortunately uh, she did not take into account the Hall of Trophies in the, in the fortress so Superman goes over and destroys a sword that she was given for saving the gem planet of Tresor from space pirates melts down a gold statue from the Amazon world of Feminol and I don't know how old this statue is but it's got her current costume and then Superman uh, holds up and sees that there's a, a twin-headed bird from the planet Duplor where life forms have mutated and evolved like Siamese twins. And he can't, he, he, bring, he realizes he can't destroy that because that would break his, that would mean he would have to break his code against killing, which kind of brings him to his senses and makes him wonder how it all started. And we learned that it started, um, 
let's see, one day, so I don't know how long ago this was, uh, they're both on a vital mission, Superman and Supergirl are, uh, from the UN Disarmament Commission uh, to destroy a whole bunch of outlawed weapons at the fortress. And if there's one slip-up, uh, the whole world could be polluted or even destroyed. So they go into the rocky depths of the fortress to this disintegration pit that Superman has created uh, using radioactive Kryptonian elements from Kandor, which uh, will dissolve them into their molecular components instantly before they can cause any damage. So they start throwing in objects. Uh, let's see, they throw in a jigsaw ray, uh, a seismotron, which, can, to, which creates earthquakes, uh, and a vapor bomb. And suddenly, uh, as they're going up in smoke, apparently they're just about finished, but Superman spots that Supergirl has hidden uh, a weapon called a laser, which is a souped-up laser gun, which should be able to even hurt him. But Supergirl gets back at him, saying that it looks like Superman has saved a cryogen freeze wave projector, basically uh, like Mr. Freeze's cold gun or Captain Cold's cold gun. Uh, so they quickly get their weapons and fire them at each other. Of course, they counteract each other because one's heat, one's cold. So that doesn't do anything. And we start seeing that the whole room is filling up with a green gas. And now all of a sudden they really hate each other and are fly off towards and Supergirl basically declares war. And Superman just thinking about it, uh, it gets worse and starts getting mad at her again and decides he's going to take all of her super instead of wasting time and his powers on her trophies he's just going to take them down to the disintegration pit and supergirl spots this and goes through the wall uh and dives down through the rock uh drilling to where the troph uh where the disintegration pit is and it actually says as the sound effect pow pow power which reminds me of the Power Wheels commercials from when I was a kid. Pow, pow, Power Wheels. Anyway, uh, Supergirl shows up and tries to stop Superman. She flies over the disintegration pit, but because it's Kryptonian, uh, it affects her differently, uh, or actually almost the way ordinary radiation would affect a human, a normal human being, because they're abnormal, I guess. And she's in the pit, and... Um, She's in pain. Superman comes out of whatever he's under hating her and tries and says that he's going to tries to help her, offers his hand for her to grab it. She says no, she'd rather die. But uh, Superman says that you will, um, you're going to die. The only thing saving you is your costume. You better take my hand if you don't want to die. Uh, so she eventually grabs his, or either she grabs his hand or he just goes ahead and grabs it and flies her out and he seems to have come to his senses and he realizes that something made him want to save her so he takes supergirl and the, those uh, those birds and they go outside of the fortress and all of a sudden we see that the birds the bird heads anyway are billing and cooing so superman comes to realize exactly what's going on and he uses his x-ray vision and has supergirl do the same uh, looking in the fortress and sees the green fumes still throughout the fortress and it turns out that those fumes 
were from that vapor, uh, that brainwash vapor bomb. And basically, what it was supposed to do, uh, it contained a hate gas that were used by a dictator to make his troops loathe his enemies. And basically, when that gas combined with the radioactive Kryptonian elements in the disintegration furnace, it actually it also affected them, causing them to hate each other. And of course, out in the fresh air, they they don't hate each other anymore, and they feel a lot better. And they're going to work together as a team, and they clear out all the fumes from the from the castle. Wow, from the fortress. And Supergirl removes her fortress, her extra door, because they're a super team once more, and they can share the main entrance. And that's the end. And this one I have a lot more problems with. I don't know if it's because it's shorter page size, but I, there's I have more problems with this story than the other one. Um, first of all, like I said, Superman's supposed to be clearing out the gas on page two uh, using a super suction breath, but well, actually on page one, but on page two it's still there, so he didn't really do a good job of it. Second of all, did he swallow it, or did he have some place to blow it away? Otherwise, it's just going to affect it worse. Just thought I'd put that out. Page four. Um, this disintegration pit is rather huge, and um, I'm wondering how he was able to get enough radioactive elements from a bottle city to fill up this giant disintegration pit, and if he was able to get a small amount and then somehow enlarge it to normal size, why couldn't he use whatever device he used to do that to enlarge, you know, Candor? I'm just saying. Uh, page 7. Um, Superman mentions that the only thing protecting her from the disintegration pit is her costume. How does that work? It's it's as Kryptonian as they are. Basically, in that situation, it's Kryptonian. So basically, what we've got is basically what would the exact same thing that would happen if a human, a regularly clothed human, got into a regular disintegration pit, which of course is common all over the world. Um, and so, if you fall, okay, say you fell into it. No matter how much clothing you're wearing, you're going to disintegrate. And this is Kryptonian, so it affects them and their clothing the same way it would affect us and our clothing. So therefore, her and her costume should have dissolved and been gone. And I should say good riddance because I don't like this costume anyway. Although she would have been kind of naked, which wouldn't have been right for a 1970s comic. Um, but also, uh, when the bird is starting to feel better outside, it's not only cooing, but it's like hugging itself and looks like it's making googly eyes, like it's going to make out with the other head. It's kind of hard to explain, but definitely looks like it's going to try to put the moves on itself. So I, I don't know how that works when you've got two heads. Anyway, uh, page eight. Um, they mentioned that the fumes were taken away, but they don't say how. I think that would be would have been a cool story. It's almost like I kind of wish that they had um, used this story as a main story to try to flesh out, maybe fix some of the problems, and show how they took out the flame of the fumes. And um, also, they don't explain the fact that removing the giant door, uh, Supergirl door, would have left a big hole in the side of the fortress. Um, 
So I would think they'd have to fix that, but they don't mention that at all. Um, unfortunately, um, if you're watching, if you read this story, um, not just because of the way I'm pointing it out, this was, the, okay, the first time I read this, I had this figured out, and I'm not usually this smart. Um, this gas is pretty, a uh, pretty big deal. The fact that Superman tries to get rid of it, but it's still there afterwards. Um, and as you go back and you, you can see that his changes in his mind, but, um, like, you see him in the gas as he's having all these problems with Supergirl. He starts taking apart her trophies, but suddenly the gas isn't around him anymore when he's like, how did this happen? How did it get this way? As he does his recap. Uh, but it's like as soon as they're throwing in the first objects, you see the green, uh, one, a little bit of that green gas coming out of the disintegration pit. And basically right there, and that's on page four, it kind of blows the whole thing. It's like, I wonder if that gas has something to do with it. And, uh, also, it's kind of weird that they mention it comes from the vapor bomb, uh, but Supergirl hadn't actually thrown the bomb into the pit when we see the gas coming out. So maybe it was just supposed to be smoke that was colored wrong, but yeah, that kind of messed up the whole thing, kind of gave it all away. Also, um, they mentioned that outside they're feeling a lot better, but the story begins with them outside heading into the fortress, and they're hating each other. and Basically, they shouldn't be if they're outside. It shouldn't be until they actually get inside. So that kind of screws that all up. But, um, yeah, not a fan. Too much of this story. I like the first one, but he kind of went downhill on this story. Hopefully that's better next issue. Um, but that's it for the Superman books from this month. Uh, real quick, I'm go I'll go over the uh, Elsewhere in the DC Multiverse. Um... We have DC Special number 13, uh, which is the strangest sports stories ever told, which uh, we doesn't look like it has any superheroes in it, but it's still pretty cool. Oh, and before I keep going, this is from DCIndexes.com, Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. Just wanted to mention that. So thanks, Mike, for this, because I know just about all the podcasts are using you now. So thank you for having this cool site. Uh, we have Falling in Love, number 124, asking the question, is he only fooling you? Uh, we have Our Army at Wars, featuring Sergeant Rock, number 234. We have Super DC Giant, S25, which features 64 pages of Colossal Kirby classics from the Challengers of the Unknown. And basically it's three stories. Wow, so those must be pretty big stories, but if you only get three in 64 pages, or there's a lot of ads, I'm not sure. Uh, we have Wonder Woman 195. Uh, she's still in her white outfit. We have Son of Tomahawk, number 135. We have Batman 233, which, like uh, the one uh, Superman 239 from last month, appears to be all reprints. And I can tell that because editors E. Nelson Birdwell and he appears to be the main editor whenever they do these 64 page reprint issues. Uh, still has a pretty cool cover though. Um, we have Girls in Love number 160 which has a special story of My First Kiss and also Barbara Miles presents Your Love Problems. We have Lois, uh, Superman's Girlfriend Lois Lane number 111 
which actually uh, has the story of Super of Lois Lane trapped by the Justice League, and what it definitely it totally looks like Gulliver's Travels. Lois is in a bikini, which is not something you normally see Lois wearing, but she's in a bikini, and the Justice League are all little, like the little Putians, and she's laying on the ground, and they're using bat rope and um, all kind or they're all using their powers to tie her down to the ground. She seems to be unconscious, but we see green arrows shooting the rope across. We've got Black Canary, we've got Batman, Green Lantern, Hawkman, Aquaman, Flash, and Superman all trying to tie her down. Plus, there's a promise of a Rose and Thorn story. So, that looks weird, but interesting. We have... Um, Do You Dare Enter the House of Mystery, number 193, which has a really cool-looking cover. We have Our Fighting Forces... Featuring the losers, number 132, and based after last uh, the last couple of issues, I'm guessing they're still, um, you know, they're still the losers. We have a really cool Neil Adams cover on Phantom Stranger, number 14, and it looks really cool. It's called the Spectre of the Stalking Swamp, which does not feature the Spectre, but has a creature that looks like it could be Swamp Thing's cousin. It looks really cool. Um, I just really like Neil Adams' arts. Uh, arts, like his art. We have Young Love, number 87, uh, featuring Follow Your Stars to the More Beautiful You. That's pretty nifty. Um, we've got Mr. Miracle, number 3, which looks pretty interesting because Mr. Miracle is in a costume that is all white. Uh, and features something about the paranoid pill. But it's got a really cool Jack Kirby cover. We have Secret Hearts, number 153. And this one has the stars telling you when you'll find your man. And I don't know if that means like the up in the sky stars or like movie stars. We have Super DC Giant, number S26, uh, which features Aquaman in six of his most spectacular adventures. And like I said before, basically by this point, Aquaman had been canceled, so I'm it's pretty interesting that they'd even do that. Um, we have Superboy 176 with the secret of Superboy's sister, which I don't understand. But, yeah, we have Teen Titans number 34, the demon dog of, no, the demon of Dog Island, which has a cool Nick Cardi cover. We have Date with Debbie number 16. Again, that's 16, or 64 pages for 25 cents, and still looks like an Archie book and this has allows you to meet America's typical teenager Maureen McCormick and that would be uh, Marsha Brady for those of you keeping track and we have Girls Romances number 158 which offers the uh, to let you know how to develop sex appeal because kids reading comics are looking for that uh, we have Jimmy Olsen number 139, which actually features Superman meeting Don Rickles and Goody Rickles. Yes, that's right. Uh, you can read more of that, of course, at the Superman homepage in their classic pre-crisis uh, reviews. But uh, that was an interesting story. We have Adventure Comics 408 featuring Supergirl. And her costume looks different here. When Kurt Swan draws it, 
Oh, it looks like it's miscolored on this cover. It looks like she has these little red booties, like Robin's booties. Uh, and then for some reason they color her legs red, but it looks like they shouldn't be. And then her belt's bigger and stuff, but I don't know. It looks different than what we just saw in Action Comics, so maybe she changes it for the cut for that issue. I don't know. Uh, we have Detective Comics number 413 uh, featuring the freakout at Phantom Hollow, which has another really cool-looking uh, Neil Adams Batman cover. And then, last but not least, we have Strange Adventures 231, which does feature an Adam Strange story and the attack of the flying gorillas, which actually looks like a pretty cool... Uh, cover with a giant gorilla with wings attacking a couple of planes. So that's really cool. Anyway, uh, basically that's it for this month. Uh, I want to thank everybody for listening and for downloading this episode of the podcast. Uh, please make sure you check out the other really cool Superman podcasts at Superman Podcast Network at www.fortressofbailytooth.com slash supermanpodcastnetwork. And uh, thank you again for listening, and you all have a good day. Thank you for listening to Superman in the Bronze Age, hosted by Charlie Niemeyer. You can write to the show at umbc81 at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the show two ways, via the RSS feed at supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com or via iTunes. Also, if you like this show, make sure you check out the blogs and podcasts listed in the recommended sites section, and be sure to check out my reviews of other classic Superman comics at www.supermanhomepage.com. Superman and all related characters are copyright DC Comics. Also, any images or music used for this blog or podcast is purely for entertainment only. I do not make any money from this show. Thank you again for listening, and God bless. Superman is also a copyrighted feature, appearing in Superman DC Publications.